Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, as we prepared for Ashley, our oldest child, to head off to college this summer, I hopped onto Facebook and joined a group for parents of incoming freshmen at the University of Wisconsin. Now, generally many posts on there were were quite helpful. They involved uh, questions about logistics, about where to move in and, and which dorms that you could live on or whether to live off campus and some of the choices that the students were facing in terms of finding virtual versus in-person classes. And there were, of course, parents who were uh, sharing and looking for sympathy with their emotions of letting their child go off to college, launch into this new chapter of their life. But then there would be these other questions that came in too, like, how do I get to see my son's schedule? Or another question was, "How, how can I join in my daughter's meeting with her academic advisor to make sure she picks the right courses? And then there was another one that came that said, uh, do, what can I do to help my daughter in her sorority rush application video? Well, I was very tempted to say, I heard that if the parent does an introduction in the video, it really works in their favor. Can we say helicopter parenting? Now, if you aren't familiar with the term, helicopter parenting describes overprotective or over-involved parents in the life of their children. They hover over their children, seeking to make sure that they are going to get the greatest outcomes, well, at least in the minds of the parents. Now, wanting the best for your children is a great and admirable instinct. But when it's taken overboard, it can be controlling and unhealthy. Now, as a parent, I've had to navigate my own emotions of seeing my daughter head off to college and begin making decisions for herself. And on one hand, I want to pass on wisdom and the decisions I've learned and my wife Julia has learned over the years so that she doesn't have to, so that Ashley doesn't have to learn those the hard way and to protect her from unnecessary challenges. But at this, on the other hand, I have to be okay that there are some of these things that Ashley will have to learn for herself. Now, today we conclude the Encounters with Jesus series that we have been walking through this whole summer and looking at how 
different people encounter Jesus and what happens in there. Next week, we're going to begin a new series in 1 Corinthians to see how Paul's letter to the Corinthian church might speak to us in our day and age now. Back to this text. In today's text, we see another example of helicopter parenting. And all the things that are going on below the surface as Salome, the mother of James and John, engages in this conversation with Jesus as they're walking to Jerusalem. There's some hovering going on. And it's a hovering that we see for greatness. But in this encounter with Jesus, we find that Jesus begins to redefine the kind of greatness and success that they are hovering around him for. So that's what we're going to look at today. You know, this summer, our family spent some time vacationing with Julia's brother's family. And on one day, uh, we packed into their minivan and headed to downtown Colorado, uh, Boulder, Colorado, to have an outdoor patio lunch together. And when we were done, everyone was full. We decided to walk down the main street of Boulder, Colorado to check out the sites because we had never been there before. And so we began walking down, checking out some, some sh- shops. And soon I found one of my nephews named Lucas began walking beside me. And as we were chatting, he asked a question, a question that I found out would be continuously asked through the whole vacation every day. It's like, what are we doing next? What's, what are we doing next? And then he would add on, do you want some bubble tea? I replied, oh, that would be amazing. That would be a great snack to cool off with. Why don't we continue on and see what happens and you can check with your mom. So after a few more stores, he came back to me and says, uh, so what are we doing now? Do you think we can get some bubble tea? As I've come to discover, Lucas, and this is a picture of him, he's a, the one on the right, he's a very smart seven-year-old. He's always anticipating a desired outcome several steps ahead. And here he came to me knowing that probably if he asked his mom for bubble tea, the answer would likely be no. But if he planted a seed in my mind, I could suggest it to the group and his mom would probably be okay with it. I was being influenced by a seven-year-old nephew hovering around me. And in case you're curious, we did end up going for bubble tea that afternoon. Hovering. Some of us, like Lucas, are naturals at this skill, and in some ways, it's what many in this town believe is the path to success. If you get your feet into the door and intern at the right, with the right group of people, if you join the right club, or, or if you get your hair done at the right hair salon, you'll happen to bump into the right kinds of people. If you leverage your network, then your career can be set on the right trajectory. We see that in Matthew's account of the gospel, this is what Salome, the mother of James and John, does to perfection. According to John 19, Salome is also likely the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. James and John, then, were Jesus' cousins. So in the accounts of Jesus' ministry, we get a picture that the 12 disciples weren't the only ones who traveled together with him. There were also women like Salome, and Mary, Jesus' mother, and also Mary and Martha uh, from Bethany, and Joanna were all part of the entourage at different points. Some women even funded Jesus' ministry. It's something unheard of in Jesus' day. So Salome was likely part of this group traveling with Jesus as he headed to Jerusalem for the final time in his life. Now, she was already on Jesus' radar, both as a disciple following him, but also as a relative as his aunt. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you might recall that Mark's Gospel also describes the scene in Mark chapter 10, 
But in that account, Mark describes how it's the brothers who approach Jesus with this request. So how do we make sense of this difference? Well, perhaps it was her initiative, Salome's initiative, as the matriarch of the family, wanting her to, to ensure that her sons were taken care of. We've seen that happen in the past when Bathsheba went to King David to ask for a favor uh, for her son Solomon. Matriarchs were, well, uh, were influential in families. Or perhaps Matthew and Mark are just reporting different parts of this longer conversation. In any case, in Matthew 20, we see it's Jesus who, uh, it's Salome who makes the request based on the verbs. They're presented in the feminine participles. So it was very clearly a woman who first made this request. But regardless of whether it was James or John or Salome who initiates, they all clearly want something from Jesus. Now I wonder if you had a chance to hover around Jesus or anyone with a perceived position of power or authority for that matter, what would you be asking for today? What would you be longing for for someone who could, you think could do something about it? You know, when prompted by Jesus, Salome presents her request. She says in verse 21, what is it that you want? Uh, he says, what is it that you want? And she answers, grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in the kingdom. Now, I'm sure that when Jesus says this, this is why she asks this. Because in the previous chapter, if you scroll up on your phone or flip over a page on your Bible, that there's something in the minds of the disciples. They had just heard Jesus teach a young man, a rich young man, about riches in the kingdom of God. And it's there after that scene that Peter, one of the other disciples, asked Jesus, saying, hey, we've left everything to follow you. What's there left for us? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, when the Son of Man goes to sit on his glorious throne, you will also, who have followed me will also sit on the 12 uh, thrones. That's what's in their mind. And now in the scene, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. And he's just mentioned that he's going to die for the third time in, in the preceding passage in verses 17 and 18. Now remember, Jews were expecting a Messiah to come and deliver them from Roman occupation, from the oppressors. They are looking for a political and military leader who will enter the epicenter of Jewish life and history, take back control, and make Israel great again. There's this past history that they're looking back towards that saying, if only we could get back to there, and if someone could lead us there, life would be great. And they're thinking that they are in with Jesus, especially as he's making his way to Jerusalem with this prediction of his death. The campaign is moving forward, and they've hitched their ride to the right coattails on their way to greatness, so it seems. And then Jesus asks them, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they answer, we can. You see, the cup in Scripture is symbolic of one's divinely determined destiny, whether it's blessing or disaster, whether it's salvation or wrath. And so when the disciples say, we can do it, we can drink the cup, they're likely think of the, thinking of the cup of blessing and greatness. And perhaps there might be a cup of suffering, suffering along the way, but the reward is going to be worth it because they're going to be seated at the right and the left hand of Jesus when he sits on the throne.
They are thinking about positions of power, of influence, and of wealth that will come along with being in with Jesus. Now, it's a storyline of many of these hero movies. One, of the, one recent one I watched was uh, 12 Strong, which, where Chris, Hem, Chris Hemsworth plays a Green Beret captain leading a special forces unit to be the first American responders in Afghanistan after the September 11th terrorist attacks. Or it could be like Aragorn in, in Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring. Or the reward for Norse warriors in Valhalla. In all of these stories, the leader might say something like this to, the, to their, his, his warriors at a, an important crossroads in the this, in this story. Where we're going is off the record. No one can come. No one's going to come for us if we die. And I can't order you to come along, but I have to tell you what the risks are. You can walk away right now, and no one will think anything less of you. But if you come with me, it could be a one-way ticket. And of course, in all the movies, and all the stories, everyone's in, right? They're willing to drink the cup, because if they succeed, their names will be memorialized in history. That's the cup that the disciples likely had in mind as they hovered around Jesus, their rabbi, their leader, and he asks them, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? I wonder if Jesus were about to ask us the same question. Are you willing to drink the cup? What kind of reward do we have in mind that's on the other side? Maybe it's our visions of greatness but they don't always have to be material or, or political like the disciples had in mind. We all make deals internally with God in some ways. You say, God, I've been faithful to you. I've served you. I feel like I've been drinking the cup that you served me faithfully. I gave you my best days and to you and to, to, to the church. So when are you going to reward me? When are you going to reward me with uh, my, my simple prayer of uh, a partner to walk through life with? Well, when are you going to reward me for this career I've always longed for? When are you going to give me a child to love and to raise? When is my loved one, my spouse, my partner who doesn't know you, when are they going to come to know you and trust you, Jesus, so we can walk through life sharing our deepest values and convictions? Maybe our, our, reward, our reward we're longing for is when am I going to feel at home in this body that you've given to me? When am I going to see justice for all of the oppression I've experienced or all the oppression that my sisters and my brothers have experienced, all these things that I think will make my life greater? I've been faithful to you. I want to drink the cup. I've been willing to drink the cup, Lord. I'm not sure what the answer is for you, but maybe you could just say and mention that before God in God's presence now. You know, like the disciples, we can often come before God with a preconception of what a great life is, what a good reward is. And like the disciples, because of that idea of greatness, we say, okay, we're willing to drink the cup, Lord. And that's what James and John do here. They, though they make the request, the problem of misguided greatness doesn't just lie with James and James and John and their, their helicopter parent, Salome. You see, all of the disciples have this in mind. And that's why they're so indignant with James and John because they've made this request. 
but also because they're using their family connections to get ahead of others in their pursuit of greatness. See, James and John look like they're hovering closer to Jesus because they're relatives of the incoming Messiah and King and pushing the others aside. But we find that Jesus has a different cup in mind. Jesus has a different kind of greatness in mind. You know, for Jesus, the kind of greatness, the cup that Jesus refers to is his forthcoming suffering by going to the cross. When Jesus tells them that they too will drink the cup, he's in some ways redefining the cup for them as well. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. We know now that when Jesus says, you will drink my cup, it's referring to James becoming the very first one of the apostles to die for, as a martyr for following Christ. That's, we're told that in Acts chapter 12. And for John, drinking the cup is suffering persecution and being exiled and imprisoned for most of his latter part of his life. That's what Revelations 1 talks about. The kind of cup and the kind of reward is not for Jesus to grant. All, including Jesus, must submit to the Father and the Father's will for the future. It's only the Father that grants the places in God's kingdom. Our role is simply to obey and to take this cup that the Father hands to us. And each one of us might have a different looking cup. For James and John, together with their helicopter mother, the greatness they envisioned is upended by what Jesus says, but also by what Jesus is about to do by going to the cross. In verse 26 to 28, Jesus says to them, not so with you, after referring to the kind of authority and greatness and, uh, that the world defines. He said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your, your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Jesus points to the two lowest positions in their culture as examples of greatness. That of a servant and that of a slave. Servant is one who's given, whose job is to help others, their superiors. A slave is one who doesn't have any rights at all. Someone else actually owns them. Greatness in God's kingdom wasn't about angling for position or for influence or for wealth. For Jesus, greatness is servanthood. Greatness is sacrificing your position of privilege so that others may benefit. How might you be tempted to hover around Jesus for the reward of upward mobility, of influence, and of authority? And are you truly willing to drink the cup that Jesus drinks? It's a question that I have to ask for myself as well. See, James and John saw themselves as deserving to be on the top of the kingdom, and they tried to leverage their influence and their family relationships to get it. But Jesus didn't even seek that for himself, even though he deserved it. He sought the position and the path of lowly service by giving his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom comes from the practices of warfare. 
where it was the price paid to bring a prisoner of war out of captivity. They couldn't break out themselves. Someone else had to pay for them to be released. This term ransom was also used in ancient times to refer to the release from slavery. See, You see, someone had to pay for a slave to be set free. And often what they would do is uh, they would pay the ransom in the name of a god. So the slave technically was free from the, this master but belonged to a god. But as far as people were concerned, he or she was now free. You know, Jesus' downward mobility points to one important aspect of Christ's saving work. It's that we cannot break free from the sin that we're enslaved to. There's parts of our lives that have a grip on us. When we try to define our identity, ourselves, when we try to define success and what it means to be good by ourselves, we try to find meaning on our own terms, we live in ways that don't bring flourishing to our lives or to those around us and to the world around us. And those are things that grip us and we cannot break free of them on our own strength. And we can never pay the price for our freedom no matter how hard we try, no matter how smart we think we are. And you may be listening along today and you're thinking, hey, Andrew, I, I, I get where you're going, but it doesn't sound like a good time following Jesus. You know, I came to church service today to find some hope. So here it is. And it's good. You know, we can be set free from sin because Christ has paid our ransom price to set us free. Jesus takes the, our place in paying the price that none of us would ever want to pay for our sin. It's broken parts of our lives that we all have. The price for that is death, actually. As much as God loves us, God is holy. And that's all that we have to rely on is Jesus' ransom that is paid for us. So we think about it. How is Jesus able to do this, to endure suffering, to drink the cup that he was asked to drink, to live this life of downward mobility during his time on earth, to live and to be willing to pay the ransom price for someone else, for all of us to benefit? It comes from this. He was able to do it because of his confidence in the greatest parent of all, God the Father. You know, Jesus trusted in God the Father's care and love over him, but also over all of creation. And so he was willing to go through what he went through because of his love for God and his love for all. Jesus trusted in God's plan and vision more than what he saw with his very own eyes for his life. We find that on the night that he was betrayed, he asked, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. He didn't want to take it. He knows what it's like for us to experience that. But yet, he went through it because of his love and his confidence in God's love for him, but also for the whole world. Jesus was so confident in the character of God that he could say, as King David says in Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's something Jesus knew and believed and walked through his life. Or in Psalm 91, when King David also says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. You know what that language is describing? A helicopter hovering parent. 
God the Father hovering over our lives if we're willing to come under that shadow. You know, we have the ultimate helicopter parent in God the Father who's looking out for our, a life of true greatness for every one of us, for you, and for me, and for the whole world. Even when people don't want it, God wants to offer it. That's how big his love is. For God's hovering is not stifling, it's not imposing. God's hovering is not demeaning, does not take away, but lifts up and gives more. God's hovering does not arise out of insecurity. It's welcoming and full of love and goodwill beyond our expectations and any kind of greatness that we could ever imagine for ourselves. You see, we often come to God and hover around God because we have our visions of greatness and we say that if I'll drink... I'll drink this cup, God, if you'll give me this. But you see, our visions of greatness are far too small. But when we put our trust in Jesus, we realize that in this future life affects, the greatness of the future life affects what, how we see what happens in this present life. If we see Jesus for who he is, we not only see how he redefines uh, greatness, but he begins to, refine, to redefine what a helicopter parent looks like in helping us see who God the Father is. And if we're willing to put our trust in God, if we're willing to put our trust in the ransom price paid by God's Son, Jesus, and if we're willing to follow in the ways of Jesus and embrace this cup that God offers to us, there is nothing but greatness in store for you in this life, but also in this life to come. And that's an amazing assurance. It's a greatness that none of us could ever envision for ourselves and allows us to be like Jesus, to walk this path of downward mobility to enable all to experience the truly great life in God's kingdom. And when we do that and trust in Jesus and follow in his footsteps, we have the ability to do the same. That's true greatness. That's true freedom. So we don't have to hover around people who we think will give us what we want. Or even hover around God. But we can live as we were truly created for, under the loving, under the hovering care of our great parent, God. Amen.